We bless you, Lord Jesus. He heard us that time. Hallelujah. Father, we thank you for your goodness and your mercy. We thank you that you always watch over us, that you watch over your word to perform it. We thank you, Father, for the Holy Ghost who gives us utterance. We thank you that he opens the eyes of our understanding that we might see and know who we are in Christ and all the wonderful things that you've done for us. We bless you, Father. We thank you for your mercy and your kindness. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. Hallelujah. Well, let's start in Revelation chapter 12 as we have been doing for some time. Revelation chapter 12 gives us an overview of things past, present, and future concerning the devil and his operations here in the earth. We'll start in verse 7. It says, And there was war in heaven, and Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, talking about the devil, and the dragon fought and his angels, and prevailed not, neither was their place found any more in heaven. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now has come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accuses them before our God day and night. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they loved not their lives unto the death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you that dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea. For the devil has come down unto you, having great wrath, because he knoweth that he has but a short time. And when the dragon saw that he was cast into the earth, he persecuted the woman who had brought forth the man-child, talking about Jesus. And then skip down with me to verse 17. And the dragon was wroth with the woman... And went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. It talks about, in Revelation chapter 12, it talks about how that uh, Satan persecutes the, the, uh, uh, the nation of Israel. But it's not just talking about the nation of Israel because it speaks of those that have the testimony of Jesus. So the war that he makes against the seed of, of God or the seed of Abraham is the church. Paul wrote to the Romans, and he said, not all Israel is Israel. He was making the contrast between Isaac and Ishmael as far as the blessing of God and the, the, uh, the chosen people of God are concerned. And he talks about how that it's the church, those that have accepted Jesus, those are the true seed of Abraham. Those are the ones that comprise spiritual Israel. So again it says, And the dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed which keep the, test, the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus. God is faithful to show us that we are in a war. The church is in a war. And that war is the backdrop for everything else that's going on around the world today. God is faithful to show us 
not only the fact that we are in a war, but who our adversary is, which is the devil. He shows us the way that he operates, which is through deceit. And then he gives us the means whereby we can win the war against our enemy, which is by the testimony of our, of our of the testimony of the words of our mouth, the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now I want you to look with me over to Matthew chapter 24, beginning in verse 3, it says, And Jesus sat upon the Mount of Olives, and the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when shall these things be? And what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? Jesus has just told them that the, the Herod's temple would be destroyed and not one stone left upon another. And Jesus answered and said unto them, Take heed that no man deceive you. For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. Notice the first thing that he mentions is deception. When he talks about the, the last days, he talks about deception. Well, we've already read in Revelation chapter 12 that that's the tool that the enemy uses, the only weapon that he has. And Jesus confirms by the Holy Ghost that deception is the issue for the last days. Take heed that no man deceive you, for many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. Apparently, folks, there are things that will be said in the name of Jesus and about Jesus and the Father God that will be untrue and that many people will be deceived by. And you shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you be not troubled, for all these things must yet come to pass, but the end is not yet. So there will be wars, but then there will be false reports of wars and things like that too. He said, see that you be not troubled. The word troubled is the word frightened. I believe the church has a greater responsibility and a greater need to be strong in the Lord, to be consistent, and to con conquer fear than perhaps any other time in the history of the church. For nation shall rise against nation. This word nation is the word ethnos. So he's talking about races rising up against other races. He's talking about race wars. He's talking about a lot of the things that we're seeing going on in our country today. Kingdoms shall be against kingdom. These are uh, what we know of as countries. And there shall be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in diverse places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted and shall kill you. And you shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. And then shall many be offended and shall betray one another and shall hate one another. And many false prophets shall rise and deceive many. Again, here's a reference to false reports or false doctrines that will be taught in the last days. And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. But he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations. And then shall the end come. Folks, I want you to realize something and that is everything that's taken place in this year, beginning in the, the middle of January, everything that has taken place regarding the economy and the shutdowns and all the other things related to the coronavirus, 
all that started and took place as a result of a false report. When the report of the coming coronavirus in its early stages, everything about the economy that shut down and everything that took place was because of the threat of what the coronavirus would do and how many people would be impacted and affected and how many people would die. None of those things came to pass. None of the things that they reported about the coronavirus as far as how widespread it would be, how many people in the country it would affect and those types of things, none of those were true. None of those came to pass. Now, I'm sure there'll be some people that say, well, because we socially distanced ourselves and because we wore these silly little masks, that's what kept it from being what it was reported to be. But nothing could be further from the truth. The fact was, the report, the initial report, which was not even peer-reviewed, the initial report created such a fear that this country and many other countries around the world committed economic suicide because of what they were afraid would come and what they were afraid would happen. And none of those projections took place. None of them came into being. Not a one of them. But people lost their jobs in record numbers. Businesses went out of business. Well, I'm sure we haven't even seen the, the final tally on what that is going to turn out to be or what that's going to look like. But it was all fear-related. Or can we say it this way? Deception took hold. The devil knows how to deceive. He's good at it. Look at what he's done with the church. One of the greatest things that we have to do, one of the most important things, one of the foundational things that we have to do in preaching on the subject of healing is convince the church that Paul wasn't sick. Because if Paul was sick, then how can we have faith to, to be healed for ourselves? How can we have confidence that God would do something different for us than what he did for him based on the, the belief that's so widespread in the church that Paul was sick and God made him sick and God refused to heal him? The devil's pretty good at this deception stuff. He's been practicing for a long time. And we just read in Revelation chapter 12 that he increases his efforts in the last days. He knows his time is short. And so he increases his efforts. Look with me over to, to 2 Timothy chapter 3. This know also, verse 1, this know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. This word perilous means strength reducing. Strength reducing. Now folks, I'm going to read the list real quickly of the things that Paul says will be in effect for the last days and I want you to understand that this is what deception looks like this know also that in the last days perilous times shall come strength reducing times shall come for men shall be lovers of their own selves covetous, boasters, proud 
blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. From such, turn away. That's what deception looks like. Instead of accepting the word of God, being a doer of the word of God, walking in the love of God, which is pretty much secure for everything on that list. Instead, people will believe the lies of the devil and hold fast to the devil's lies and create these perilous times. Now let me ask you something about this. What does it take to keep from being deceived? Well, the antidote for deception is knowledge of the truth. But the Bible is telling us that people will forfeit that knowledge and instead choose to believe the lies of the devil. Did you notice that the Bible talked about the words that we speak as being our victory in Revelation chapter 12? How many of you think God is performing his will in the earth with the terrible things that are going uh, going on around us through this plague and so forth? Plagues and diseases aren't of God. God created the earth in the six days of creation. And then he, made a, he rested on the seventh day. He made an end of everything that he made. And there was nothing that could harm. There was nothing that could hurt anybody. It was a perfect existence. Absolutely perfect existence. Now why did God make that perfect existence? Because that's what he wanted it to be. Now we know the Bible says in many different ways in many different places that God never changes. There's no variableness in him, no, neither shadow of turning. He said in one place of himself, I am God, I change not. So if God created a perfect existence here for man because that was his will then, then how could he want anything more or want anything other than this per same perfect existence for us in the day that we live in. God's will never changes. So if he wanted the earth to be a perfect place in the beginning, he still wants the earth to be a perfect place now. That doesn't discount or ignore the fact that man sinned and sin and death, the law of sin and death, began to rule over the earth. But that doesn't change the fact that God intends intended for the earth to be a perfect place. In other words, God created the kingdom of God on the earth to be just as the same as it is in heaven. Jesus identifies the kingdom of God as being just that. You remember when the disciples came and asked him to teach them to pray. He gave them what the church knows as the, the Lord's prayer. It really was the disciples' prayer. But a part of that prayer is thy kingdom come 
Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus is telling us what the kingdom of God is. Where the will of God is done on the earth just like it is in heaven. Do you remember that we read in Matthew chapter 24 verse 14. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness. And then shall the end come. Well what is the gospel of the kingdom? The good news of the kingdom of God which very simply is that God wants the same for you here on the earth that he wants for you in heaven. Now folks, there's no lack in heaven. There's no unrighteousness in heaven. There's no sin in heaven. There's no sickness in heaven. So by definition, those are the same things that God wants you to overcome and live above here on the earth. Notice the last thing that we read here in 2 Timothy chapter 3 where it talks about people that have a form of godliness but denying the power thereof. Having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof. Having a form of godliness. They look like they're godly people. They claim to be godly people. But they're denying the power of the gospel. I want you to turn with me over to Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4. Jesus tells the story of the sower sowing the word. He speaks the parable about the different kinds of ground or the different kinds of people. The ground is representative of people. And he tells the difference between those that hear the word and don't make it work in, our, in their lives and others that receive the results. Beginning in verse 10, and when he was alone, they that were with, about him with the twelve asked him of the parable. And he said unto them, unto you it is given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. Think about that. He's saying the truth in, uh, that revealed by this parable of the sower sowing the word is the key, the mystery, the explanation, the revelation of how the whole kingdom of God works. Again, Jesus defined the kingdom of God as the will of God being done on the earth just like it is in heaven. So Jesus said unto you is given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. But unto them that are without, all these things are done in parables. And then he begins to explain the sower sowing the word, the parable. And he talks about how the devil comes to steal the word that's taken from, some, from the heart of some. Then he talks about those who receive the word with gladness. But then affliction or persecution, circumstances of life arise up. And they start paying attention to those circumstances. And it keeps the word from being re, uh, produced fruit in their lives and then it talks about those that get distracted by the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches and the lusts of other things that choke the word and keep it from producing fruit in their lives and then finally he talks about those that are on good ground such as hear the word and receive it and bring forth some 
bring forth fruit, some 30 and some 60 and some 100 fold. In other words, he says that the good ground, the key to understanding and receiving the will of God in your life here on the earth, just like in heaven, is to resist and to keep your heart from being deceived by the affliction or persecution or circumstances and troubles in life and by not getting distracted by the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches and the lusts of other things. Now Jesus goes on to explain some things further beginning in verse 21. Let's keep reading. He said, and, he, and it said unto them, is a candle brought to be put under a bushel under a bed and not to be set on the candlestick for there is nothing hid which shall not be manifested neither was anything kept secret but that it should come abroad in other words Jesus is saying that the key to producing fruit in your lives the key to taking God's word and being a doer of God's word and experiencing God's will the things that he wants for you and wants for all of us here on this earth just like in heaven that key is to live out front. Let the word of God live out front in your lives so that you become a doer of the word instead of a hearer only. Then he says something else that's so, well, it's, it's easy to overlook it, but everything hinges on it. Verse 23, if any man has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said unto them, take heed what you hear. Take heed what you hear. And with what measure you meet, it shall be measured to you. And unto you that hear shall more be given. He says, watch what you hear. Watch what you hear. Now, folks, remember, in the last days, there are perilous times, strength-reducing times. And those strength-reducing times are the result of all those things that we read on the list where the devil is deceiving people in different ways perhaps, different ways for different people, but it's all under the category or under the guise of deception. We've just had a week where we've heard over and over and over again, touted by the news media, what the Democratic Party's plan for America is. And folks, I'm sad to say this, but the Democratic Party's agenda is pretty much the devil's agenda. The devil has certainly found a home in that political party. And we've heard some things that sound like or have a form of godliness in that, well, for one, one example that we can give, in the acceptance speech for the party's nomination, Joe Biden talked about the race that we were in, the campaign that he's in, and he talked about it being the difference between light and dark. Now, folks, I agree with him. 
but he's claiming to be on the light side. Now, Jesus said that we could judge a tree by the fruit that it produces. The Democratic Party platform includes abortion without restriction or murder on demand. God's commandment, King James translates it, thou shalt not kill, but it really is thou shalt not murder. And the difference between killing and murder is murder is shedding of innocent blood. Killing is not necessarily so. Can be, but not necessarily in every case. But murder is shedding of innocent blood, and there is no more innocent blood that you can get than an unborn child. It wasn't televised, and so therefore it wasn't widely reported. But there were certain people that spoke as a part of the convention platform or schedule. That was just astounding. There was not one mention made of the riots and the looting that was taking place and is taking place in some of America's cities. Coincidentally, those cities are all run by Democrats. But I'm sure that doesn't have anything to do with it. We all know that Antifa is the enforcement arm of the Democratic Party. And the assumption, although nobody has ever said anything about it, but I assume that everybody understands that if the Democrats win the election, then all that Antifa rioting and looting and all that other kind of stuff will stop. I don't believe it will. I heard about a, a black pastor from Carolina. He was one of the speakers during the daytime part of the convention. And he, I, I, it caused me to think of that passage of scripture in Mark chapter 24. Because the things that he was saying in the name of Jesus and the conclusions that he was drawing, he was making the argument between light and darkness just like Joe Biden did a couple of days later. And the things that he was saying that left him to support the Democratic Party, even though we know that murder is against the will of God, even though we know that God wouldn't condone any form of murder, whether it's abortion or otherwise. But he was saying that the the compassion of the church demanded that Christians vote for the Democrats. They had one speaker, was a woman that was let out of jail after serving 27 years of a life sentence. She was convicted for kidnapping rape, sexual torture, and murder. 
and they introduced her as an influential community leader. Folks, you can't make this stuff up. It's so far out of bounds that it strange credibility, but it really happened. Now, all of these things are related to words. All of the speeches that took place are related to words. And if you don't take heed what you hear, then it will drag you down to the place where you don't accept or remember that you have any power whatsoever. And that's what it's designed to do. It's designed to be the voice of sin and death to keep you from doing what the Bible directs us to do and to keep us from being the people that Jesus died for us to be. Now there are three times, three examples in the scripture that I want to show you or refer to. The first is in Numbers chapter 13. I want to give you three examples of what the people of God did in situations where they were totally outmanned, without strength, without power, in and of themselves. And what took place and what were the results? Numbers chapter 13 tells us about the 12 spies that were sent into the land of Canaan. We'll start reading with the 17th verse. And Moses sent them to spy out in the land of Canaan and said unto them, Get you up this way southward and go up into the mountain. Now here's the purpose for going in and spying out the land. And see the land, what it is. God always wants you to see what things, what things are as they really are. He never tries to sugarcoat anything. He never tries to deny anything. It is what it is with him. And see the land, what it is, and the people that dwell therein, whether they be strong or weak, few or many, and what the land is that they dwell in, whether it be a good or a bad land, and what cities there be that they dwell in, whether in tents or in strongholds, and what the land is, whether it be fat or lean, whether there be wood therein or not, and be ye of good courage, and bring of the fruit of the land. Now the time was the time of the first striped grapes. So they went up and searched the land from the wilderness of Zin and to Rehob, as the men were come to Hamath. And they ascended by the south and came unto Hebron, where some guy, some guy, and some guy, the children of Anak were. I'll let you pronounce them for yourself. Now Hebron was built seven years before Zoan in Egypt. And they came under the brook of Eskel and cut down from thence a branch with one cluster of grapes. And they bare it between two upon a staff and they brought of the pomegranates and of the figs. The place was called the brook of Eskel because of the cluster of grapes which the children of Israel cut down from thence. And they returned from searching of the land forty days. 
And they went and came to Moses and to Aaron and to all the congregation of the children of Israel under the wilderness of Paran to Kadesh and brought back word unto them and unto all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told him and said, We came into the land which thou sentest us, and surely it flows with milk and honey, and this is the fruit of it. Nevertheless, the people be strong that dwell in the land, and the cities are walled and very great. And moreover, we saw the children of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the south. The Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites dwell in the mountains. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and by the coast of Jordan. And Caleb stilled the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and possess it, for we are well able to overcome it. But the men, remember they were all charged to be of good courage when they went into the land of, of Canaan. But the men that went up with him said, We be not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. Now, folks, there was no place in the instruction that they were given that would put them in a position of deciding for everybody else whether they should take the promised land. They're simply tasked with the, the reality of what things are. Go tell us what you find. But they jump and cross the line here because they start saying, because of what we've seen, because of the walls around Jericho, because of the, the people, the number of the people that dwell in different parts of the land, we can't take this land. That never was their job. They never were tasked with trying to de determine or decide whether or not Israel could take the land. God had already said the land is yours. That's why it's called the promised land. God has already said it was theirs. They haven't taken possession of it. But they knew from the beginning that God would bring them into the land. They knew that God had said that he would bring them into the land. They knew that he had said that he would be with them and drive out their enemies. All these things were known to them. But they stepped into a place which wasn't theirs to take. And they began to give their opinion. Which was based on fear. Which was based on the circumstances of what they had seen. So the men that went up with him said, we not, Be not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. And they brought up an evil report of the land which they had searched unto the children of Israel, saying. Notice it's, what, it's about what they said. They brought up an evil report of the land which they had searched unto the children of Israel, saying, The land through which we have gone to search it is a land that eateth up the inhabitants thereof. And all the people that we saw in it are men of a great stature. And there we saw the giants, the sons of Anak, which come of the giants. And we were in our own sight as grasshoppers, and so we were in their sight. So they certainly, the ten spies, ten of the twelve spies that went into the promised land, they certainly allowed the circumstances of what they saw to completely block out the promise that God had made about giving them the promised land. Totally and completely. Now, what they say is revealing because they said the land will eat us up. They said the people on the other side of those walls are too strong for us to conquer. Now, if we fast forward 40 years, 
you know the story how that they rebelled against God and spent 40 years in the wilderness. This is a group of people from 7 to 9 million strong that stayed lost in a really small place in the wilderness for 40 years. But when they come to the promised land again, where the children of these people go in to take the land, they find out that the people that are living in Jericho already knew that their walls were not sufficient to keep the Israelites out. And the reason they gave for why they knew that is because God parted the Red Sea for them 40 years before. Well, the God that can part the Red Sea so that the Israelites can go over on dry ground certainly wouldn't have any trouble with a wall. But what I want you to get is this. The ten spies saw themselves as too weak. And so they assumed that that's how the people behind the walls saw them. But the people behind the walls had been afraid of these people for 40 years. At the point in time that this takes place, they're probably two and a half to three years out of the deliverance from Egypt. Two and a half to three years beyond where God parted the Red Sea for them to dry, pass over on dry ground. The devil seems to be an expert, a master, at telling you what other people think about you and your chances. But he's never right. He's a liar and he's the father of lies. So every time the devil tells you, not only can you not do it, but your adversaries know that you can't do it. He's working, he's working his magic of deception. Now let's go over to chapter 14. Verse 1, And all the congregation lifted up their voice and cried, and the people wept that night. Folks, they're facing a decision. They're at a crossroads. Ten spies say, we can't do it. Two, spy, two of the twelve spies, Caleb and Joshua, Say, sure, we can do it. God's on our side. Don't you remember what he did for us at the Red Sea? Don't you remember how he promised to give us this land? If we could go back if we wanted to take the time. We could go back until the, the point where God talks to Moses through the burning bush. God told him the promised land that he was taking them to was where the Amalekites were and the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Canaanites. It shouldn't be any surprise to anybody when they discover that the people, all these groups of people are in the promised land. God told them that. He told them that he would dispossess those people and give the promised land to Israel. So the children of Israel are at a crossroads they have two reports. One, which was the majority report, the report of the ten spies, said that we can't go into the land and take it. The people are too strong for us. Caleb and Joshua, however, the other two of the twelve spies, said God's on our side. We can certainly take this. The children of Israel can choose whichever way they want. And notice they went with the majority report. 
And as a result, they lifted up their voice and they cried. They wept because they accepted the majority report. And it kept them from taking hold of what God said was theirs. Once that happens, it says, And all the children of Israel murmured against Moses and against Aaron, and the whole congregation said unto them, Would God that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would God we had died in this wilderness? And wherefore has the Lord brought us unto this land to fall by the sword, that our wives and children should be a prey? Were it not better for us to return to Egypt? And they said to one another, Let us split off and make our own church. And let us return unto Egypt. Why did the people of Israel not stop? And notice it doesn't give us much information about anybody else stepping up and saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, calm down. Let's talk this out. Instead, it provides for us an example of what we face, where you've got two reports. The report of the devil is always going to be you can't have what God says you could have. The report of the devil is always going to be you're too weak to take hold of what Jesus purchased. That is if you even get to the point where you believe Jesus purchased it. So much of what Jesus died for on the cross is obscured and hidden by the devil so that the majority of the church world wanders through life not knowing who's doing what to them. And without a clue about God's will for their lives. So on one hand they've got the evil report. You can't make it. No matter what God has said. No matter what God has done before. You know you. You'll never be able to make it. Or you've got on the other side. The other report. Which is simply God's word. So the people begin to rebel against Moses and Aaron. They blame him for their decision. I don't want to go through the whole thing. So let me skip down to verse 11. And the Lord said unto Moses... How long will this people provoke me? And how long will it be be before they believe me? For all the signs which I have showed unto them. These are the people that saw the 12 plagues in Egypt before they were delivered. They've seen the power of God in some incredible ways that perhaps no other generation on the face of the earth has ever seen. Skip down with me to verse 28. When God speaks to Moses and he tells them what will be the consequences, God reveals to Moses or directs Moses to say it in a certain specific way. God said to Moses, Say unto them, As truly as I live, saith the Lord, as you have spoken in my ears, so will I do unto you. 
Now, folks, I want you to realize, if you're reading with us in the King James, you'll see the phrase, as truly as I live, or as truly as, really, that the translators added. When the translators add something, anytime you find in the King James uh, translation something in italics, it means the translators have added it. And so they're trying to, to take hold of something that they probably don't understand themselves. The King James translation is a, is a terrific translation. But there are some things that the translator didn't serve as well in the translation that they provided. Now, any translation is going to be based on the knowledge that the translators have of the language, first and foremost. But then secondarily, their translation is going to be dependent on their knowledge of the character and the nature of God. An example of that is in Isaiah chapter 53, where they take the words, the Hebrew words for sickness and pains, and they translate them griefs and sorrows. Now, there's no reason that they should translate those words other than sickness and pains, because the same words are translated sickness and pains in other places in the Old Testament. But when it came to the fact, and it's clear to see, in Isaiah chapter 53, when you come to the reality that that's a part of what Jesus died on the cross for, that it was his sacrifice on the cross that by his stripes we were healed, that seemed too much for them to accept. And so their understanding or lack of thereof, lack of understanding of the character and the nature of God influenced the translation that they prepared for us in a negative manner. And that lack of understanding on their part has passed down generation after generation to the modern day church, which is why the subject of healing, which should be such a foundational truth for the body of Christ, has instead become so controversial. So here where the translators translated this as truly as I live. This is God speaking, not Moses speaking for him. But this is God speaking for himself. What, does he, what is he trying to convey to us? What is he saying? Folks, there are two outstanding characteristics of the life of God. Two outstanding characteristics of the life of God. One is God's life is eternal. And the other is God's life never changes. Now, if you can take those two things, and I know I hammer on this a lot, but if you can take those two truths and establish those as a foundation for your relationship with God, you'll get light years further than those who would establish the foundation on something else. He's saying his, this is an eternal law of God that will never change. This is an eternal law of God that will never change. Remember how Revelation chapter 12, verse 17 said, we'll overcome the devil by the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony. In other words, the words that we speak based on what Jesus purchased for us by the shedding of his blood. 
will be the victory or the measure of victory that we'll enjoy in our lives. So he said, God said to them, say unto them, as truly as I live, this is an, uh, an eternal and unchanging law of God. As you have spoken in my ears, so will I do unto you. He explains what he means. Your carcasses shall fall in this wilderness, and all that were numbered of you according to your old, whole number from 20 years old and upward, which have murmured against me. That's what they said when they were blaming Moses. They said it would have been better for us to die in Egypt. Well, they're not there yet, so that part doesn't count. Or it would be better for us that we die in the wilderness. Well, God said, yeah, okay, I can do that. And then he explains why. Because it's what you said. As you have spoken in my ears, so shall I do unto you. Now, folks, there are two places, only two places in the Scripture where God swears by himself in this way. As truly as I live. This is the one... But the other one is in this chapter too. Look back with me to verse 21. But as truly as I live, same wording, same declaration. Here's another eternal law of God that will never change. As truly as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. You remember Matthew chapter 24, verse 14? And this gospel of the, of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness. And then shall the end come. That's this. Two eternal and never-ending, never-changing laws of God. One is, as you have spoken in my ears, so shall I do unto you. The second one is, the glory of God will be seen in all the earth before the end comes. When God made man, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, God said, let us make man in our own image after our own likeness. And let them have dominion over the work of our hands. God delivered unto mankind the authority on the earth. To have what he will. According to the words of his mouth. The exercise of that authority. God says. Comes down to the words that you speak. Well if that's the way we overcome the devil. Then that would certainly make sense how to realize and experience the will of God in our lives on the earth just as it is in heaven. Folks, no matter what happens, no matter what the reports are, no matter what the media reports to us, no matter what takes place, no matter what famines, what pestilences, what earthquakes take place, no matter what race riots occur, the never-changing eternal law of God is that he deals with, you, with us according to the words that we speak. Everything is designed by the devil to get you to say something other than what God's word says. To get you to say something other than what God's word says about who you are, 
to get you to say something other than what God's word says about what belongs to you. To get you to say something other than what God's word says about what you can have. Or what you can do. Everything is geared toward that one simple principle. Let me show you another example. 1 Samuel chapter 30. Let me set the scene for you. When David was about 17 years old, God sent the prophet down to his house to anoint him to be king instead of Saul or to be the next king of Israel. We could say it that way. David goes out a couple of months later and kills Goliath. Saul takes him into his house, loves him, because of the excellent spirit he has about him. But then David starts becoming too popular for Saul's liking. The people recognize that he's a champion, a true champion. And Saul gets jealous. And from that point on, Saul tries to kill him. So David has to flee from Saul's house. And he goes to a place outside the boundaries of Israel, the territory of Israel itself. And God supernaturally brings to him people that were dissatisfied, that were broke, that were in terrible condition. And David turns them into a mighty army. Now there were several times when David had the opportunity to kill Saul. But he was such a person of integrity he wouldn't do it. Even though he knew that he was to be the next king. And so about 13 years take place before uh, David becomes the king of Israel in Saul's place. This is the last battle that David fights before he becomes king. He and his mighty army have gone out there conducting guerrilla warfare campaigns on behalf of Israel, fighting the enemies of Israel. All the time while David is trying to maintain some undercover operation type thing, where the enemies of Israel think that he's on their side when in fact he's fighting against them all the time. He's got to be pretty smart about this and God gives him some incredible wisdom to be able to do this. And so they're coming back from the campaign and they come to their headquarters, the city of Ziklag, and they find that when they, while they've been gone, well, let's just start reading in verse 1. And it came to pass when David and his men were come to Ziklag on the third day that the Amalekites had invaded the south and Ziklag and smitten Ziklag and burned it with fire and had taken the women captives that were therein and they slew not any, either great or small, but carried them away and went on their way. So David and his men came to the city and behold, it was burned with fire and with the, their wives and their sons and their daughters were taken captive. Then David and the people that were with him lifted up their voice and wept until they had no more power to weep. And David's two wives were taken captives, Ahinoam the Jezreelitess and Abigail the wife of Nabal the Carmelite. And David was greatly distressed because the people spake of stoning him. Folks, I want you to understand a lot of the work of the enemy when he brings calamity upon you is to try to blame it on somebody else 
we all experience the same troubles in life. It's not anybody's fault. We certainly can't blame God because he's the one that gives us the means and the method to overcome the work of the devil and to gain victory in whatever situation we find ourselves in. But the important point for us to see is that when we're in great emotional distress, that's not the time to make decisions. Some people live out of their emotions so, so much that they can't accurately discern the will of God for their lives or their circumstances. So David was greatly distressed for the people spake of stoning him because the soul of all the people was grieved. Every man for his sons and his daughters. What do you do in times of emotional distress? What do you do in those strength reducing times that look like it's going to take us all under? It says David encouraged himself in the Lord. How do you do that? You remind yourself of what God said he would do. If the people of Israel in Numbers chapter 13, when they came to the promised land and spied out the land, if they had done this, then that generation that was facing the fear of the strength of the people in their armies, they would have taken possession of the promised land. The Bible never says that you can't have fear. The Bible says don't act on your fear. See, a lot of people think that strength or courage is only possible if you don't feel the emotion of fear. But being strong in the Lord and having courage is the choice of doing what the Word says no matter how you feel. That's what brings you into victory. That's what brings you to the place where you overcome. Of course, the devil's trying to get your eyes off of whatever God has promised you. The devil's trying to get your eyes turned away from the promise of victory that God has made. But we stand at a crossroads just like Israel did. We all do. So David encouraged himself in the Lord. Verse 8 says, David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I pursue after this troop? Shall I overtake them? Now David has experienced the same grief that everybody else is. His wives and children are taken from him just like others. But he recognizes that he still has opportunity to find out from God what he should do in this situation. So he asked, Shall I pursue after this truth? Shall I overtake them? And the Lord answered him and said, Pursue, for thou shalt surely overtake them and without fail recover all. Then it tells us about how David took 600 men to a certain place and 200 of them stayed behind. They were so grief-stricken. They were so overcome with their emotions they couldn't continue on. So David goes further with 400, win, uh, 400 men. And then it tells us about how he comes to a, a, a place where there's a, somebody that escaped from the camp of the, Israel, of the Amalekites. And he shows them where they are. And it says that David went 
down to where the, this uh, slave boy told him about. Verse 16. And behold, they were spread abroad upon the earth, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil that they had taken out of the land of the Philistines and out of the land of Judah. And David smote them from the twilight even until the evening of the next day, over a 24-hour period. And there escaped not a man of them save 400 young men which rode upon camels and fled. And David recovered all that the Amalekites had carried away, and David rescued his two wives. And there was nothing lacking to them, neither small nor great, neither sons nor daughters, neither spoil nor any other thing that they had taken them, and David recovered all. Now, folks, I want you to see something. These are two hopeless situations. The Numbers chapter 13 situation looks hopeless from the standpoint of the military might of Israel. The people are too strong for us, the ten said. They live in walled cities. Well, it's certainly true that they were stronger than Israel, but Israel had a secret weapon that kind of leveled the playing field. That secret weapon, which of course I'm talking about the presence of God, didn't have the confidence of all the people. It had the confidence of Caleb and Joshua, but not the others. So here their crossroads is, do we accept the report of the ten or the report of the two? They don't inquire of the Lord. They don't come to Moses and say, now Moses, we weren't expecting to hear this information about the walled cities. What should we do? They're not looking for help in making the right decision. They're okay with making the decision that their emotions are telling them to make. And so they side in with the, the ten and ignore the truthful report of the two. Here in David's case, he inquires of the Lord what to do about it. He doesn't let his grief carry him into some wrong decision. He's feeling the same thing everybody else is feeling. He's experienced the same thing everybody else has experienced. But he inquires of the Lord. Now let me ask you a question. This Numbers chapter 13 and 14 occurrence, this event. Why in the world would God say, we can understand why he would institute the eternal and unchanging law or remind them of the eternal and unchanging law about the words of their mouth. As you have spoken in my ears, so will I do unto you. But why does he talk about the glory of the Lord in the same context? And this is why. Because in this instance, in the Numbers chapter 13 experience, in this instance, the people rob him of showing his power and glory to bring them into victory. This is a really important point, so I want to stay here for just a second. God wants to show his power in your life more than you want him to. God wanted to show his glory in defeating the Amalekites and the Jebusites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Canaanites. He wanted to show his glory upon those people by favoring Israel. 
He wanted to show himself strong, just as he showed himself strong in the 12 plagues in Egypt and the crossing of the Red Sea in their deliverance. He wants to show himself just as strong or even stronger, perhaps, on behalf of his people to give them the promised land. God wants to show himself strong in such a way that nobody, no human being can take credit for what's done. I think we favor battles that look like we've got a chance. But the ones that God glories in are the ones where we have no chance. Because then he's the one that gets the credit for what's done. Let me show you another example. Second Chronicles chapter 20. It came to pass after this also that the children of Moab and children of Ammon and with them others beside the Ammonites came against Jehoshaphat to battle. Then there came some that told Jehoshaphat saying there cometh a great multitude against thee from beyond the sea on this side Syria. And behold they be in Hazan Tamar which is in Gedi. And Jehoshaphat feared and set himself to seek the Lord and proclaim a fast throughout all Judah. First thing he does is turn himself to God. Now, folks, the Bible says in James chapter 1 and verse 21, it says, But be ye doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. One of the means of deception that the enemy uses and influences us toward is not just to not know what the Bible says but to not act on what we know that it says. Our first thought in every situation should be, what does the Word say? Amen. And that really is what constitutes the renewed mind. The renewed mind is not the, one that is not the mind that knows everything about what the Bible says in every situation. The renewed mind is the one that says, what does the Bible say? And even if they don't know, they go to the Word, discover what the instruction is from the Word of God, and then act on it in their lives. This is what Jehoshaphat does. This is the principle for success in every situation. And Judah gathered themselves together to ask help of the Lord. Even out of all the cities of Judah, they came to seek the Lord. And Jehoshaphat stood in the congregation of Judah in Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court. And he said, now this is what his, his prayer is. Remember the, uh, the unchanging and eternal law of God. As you have spoken in my ears, so shall I do unto you. Remember the secondary eternal and unchanging law of God. The whole earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. Folks, you can't ever go wrong asking God to manifest his glory in your life or in your search, uh, situation. That's always what he wants to do. It's always his will. I love this prayer. Jehoshaphat said, O Lord God of our fathers, art thou not God in heaven? 
and rulest thou not over all the kingdoms of the heathen? And in thy hand is there not power and might, so that none is able to withstand thee? Jehoshaphat challenges God. Do you get that? He's challenging God. Aren't you the one that created this place? Didn't you tell us that when we come, our enemies come against us, that we called upon you that you'd help us? He challenges God. Art not thou our God who should drive out the inhabitants of this land before the people of Israel and gave it to thy seed of Abraham thy friend forever? And they dwelt therein and have built thee a sanctuary therein for thy name, saying, If when evil comes upon us and as the sword, judgment, or pestilence, or famine... We stand before this house and in thy presence, for thy name is in this house. And cry unto thee in our affliction, then thou wilt hear and help. He's challenging God. Did you not tell us that if we called upon you in a situation like this, that you would hear us and you'd help us? Didn't you say that? Folks, when we gain the kind of confidence that we all should have in the truth of God's word and the impossibility of his word not coming to pass, then we'll start praying some challenging prayers too. Heaven and earth will pass away, Jesus said, but my word will never fail. And now behold the children of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom thou would not let, let Israel invade when they came out of the land of Egypt. But they turned from them and destroyed them not. Behold, I say, how they reward us to come to cast us out of thy possession, which thou hast given us to inherit couple of things here. He blames God for them being around in the first place. The enemies being around in the first place. He says we're dealing with the children of Moab and Ammon and Mount Seir. And the only reason they're around is because you wouldn't let Israel invade them before. Behold I say how they reward us to come to cast us out of thy possession. They don't even call the land theirs. This belongs to you God. You gave it to us to inherit. O oh, our God, wilt thou not judge them? God, are you just going to let them walk all over us here? You're going to let them dispossess us from the land that you gave us? O oh, our God, wilt thou not judge them? For we have no might against this great company that comes against us. Neither know we what to do, but our eyes are upon thee. Folks, that's some kind of dynamite prayer. It puts all the responsibility over on God. Which is exactly what God wants us to do. Then upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, the son of Benaiah, the son of Jeel, the son of Madaniah. This guy has quite a pedigree. A Levite, a Levite of the sons of Asaph came the spirit of the Lord in the midst of the congregation. Now, we can make a joke about that. But let's look at it seriously. The word of the Lord that comes to Israel needs to come through somebody that the people of Israel trust. I think in many cases in the modern day church 
We've got people that are willing to speak out when they really don't have the confidence of the people. The trust of the people to speak to God or speak for God to them. There's a difference between somebody having in their heart to speak out a word of encouragement, which is prophecy, and somebody that stands in the office of the prophet or some other ministry office that God would lead his church through. Well, this guy fits the bill. And so he says, Hearken ye all Judah and you inhabitants of Jerusalem, and thou King Jehoshaphat, thus saith the Lord God unto you, Be not afraid nor dismayed by reason of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow go ye down against them. Behold, they come up by the cliff of Ziz, and you shall find them at the end of the brook before the wilderness of Jeruel. You shall not need to fight in this battle. Set yourselves, stand ye still, and see the salvation of the Lord with you, O Judah and Jerusalem. Fear not, nor be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them, for the Lord will be with you. And Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground. And all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. And the Levites of the children of the Kohathites and of the children of the Korhites stood up to praise the Lord God of Israel with a loud voice on high. That goes from a, fair, uh, a prayer and fasting service to a praise service in pretty quick order. But then tomorrow comes. It's easy for everybody to get excited and worship God in church. What are you going to do when you're by yourself tomorrow morning? They rose early in the morning and went, into the, went forth into the wilderness of Tekoa. And as they went forth, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, O Judah and you inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God, so shall you be established. Believe his prophets, so shall you prosper. And when he had consulted with the people, he appointed singers unto the Lord, that they should praise the beauty of holiness as they went out before the army, and to say, Praise the Lord, for his mercy endures forever. Now, folks, I want you to get this. Jehoshaphat consults with the people. He reminds them of what was said the day before. Remember what the prophet spoke unto us. Remember what he told us to do. Remember how easy it was to praise God yesterday. Let's keep that going. Let's take singers and put them out in front of the army. I wonder what the singers thought about that. Don't worry, singers. You go out front and the military is right behind you <laughs> and when they began to sing and to praise and when they began to sing and to praise not when Jehoshaphat told them what to do 
But when they began to do it, when they began to sing into praise, the Lord set ambushments against the children of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, which were come against Judah, and they were smitten. For the children of Ammon and Moab stood up against the inhabitants of Mount Seir, utterly to slay and destroy them. And when they had made an end of the inhabitants of Seir, every one helped to destroy one another. What started that fight? Folks, the Bible doesn't even tell us. This is such an easy and light thing for God, it doesn't even tell us what he had to do. And when Judah came down toward the watchtower in the wilderness, they looked unto the multitude, and behold, they were dead bodies fallen to the earth, and none escaped. And when Jehoshaphat and his people came to take away the spoil of them, they found among them in abundance both riches with the dead bodies and precious jewels which they stripped off for themselves more than they could carry. And they were three days in gathering of the spoil. It was so much. What started off the day before as one of the greatest threats to the people of Israel turned out to be one of the greatest blessings in the history of the nation. Now what made the difference in these three situations? Well in the first place, the first situation, Numbers chapter 13 and 14, the people didn't consult with the leadership of Israel. They just allowed the circumstances to affect their emotions so that they didn't even try to do what God instructed them to do. The second situation, the people of David's army were ready to destroy him and blame him for it, which wouldn't have done him any good whatsoever. Wouldn't have brought back one captive. David, though, feeling the same emotions that they were feeling, the same grief that the rest of the army was experiencing as well, he sought help from the Lord, got direction from God, and God turned that into not only one of the greatest victories in Israel's history, but within a matter of just a couple of days, David became the king of Israel. It was the devil's last gasp to keep the will of God from coming to pass for Israel's benefit. Thank God David handled it well. But it seems like he was the only one in the group that did. Now in this last example, Jehoshaphat gets all the people together. He proclaims a fast, and then he prays what, in my opinion, is one of the greatest prayers in the Bible. Thank God Jehoshaphat knew how to pray. And the glory of the Lord was seen upon the enemies of Israel. And Israel was three days taking away the spoil. Folks, the things that we see and hear around us in this world are designed to make you lose heart. 
Isn't that an interesting phrase that we use? Designed to make you lose heart. Because when we act on the word of God from our heart, not based on what we see or feel, but based solely on what God's word says, the promises that God's word has made to us, that action of the heart, I'm not talking about our emotions, I'm talking about the spirit, the inner man, the action of the heart leads us into victory every time. It's part of God's eternal and unchanging law. As you have spoken in my ears, so shall I do unto you. And as truly as I live, saith the Lord, the earth shall be filled with the glory of God. Jesus said that would take place before the end, before he comes back for the church. So we've got some great things to rejoice over. We've got some great things to praise God for. Let's all stand. Let's just lift our voice and thank God for his goodness. Praise him for his mercy and his kindness unto us. Praise him for the power and the victory in the name of Jesus. Let's thank him for whatever you're believing God for. We bless you, Lord. We worship your holy name. We bless you, Father. Thank you, Father, that you have redeemed our lives from destruction and crowned us with loving kindness and tender mercy. Thank you, Lord. We are not afraid, nor will we be dismayed, for you are with us. Oppression shall be far from us, for we do not fear. Neither shall terror come nigh unto us. You uphold us. You strengthen us. You help us. And our righteousness is of you. No weapon formed against us shall prosper. And every tongue that rises against us in judgment we do hereby condemn. This is our inheritance as children of God. And our righteousness is of you. Oh, Father, thank you. For giving us boldness to speak your word. By stretching forth your hand to heal. And that signs and wonders may be done in the name of thy holy child Jesus. Blessed be the name of Jesus. Blessed be the name of Jesus. Blessed be the name of Jesus.